right. So tonight we're going to talk about death, the intermediate state, <clears throat> and glorification. Who's ready to talk about death? That Who, might be the problem with the crowd. It could be. It could be. <laughs> Who read the chapter? I'll, I'll ask that. Who read their chapter? The reason I'm asking, you can already tell my voice is kind of wavering, so I've, I've made note of who read the chapter. If I have to duck out on this, <laughs> you guys are up to bat. I handed out a, as I was going through this chapter, it was, it got a little confusing to me where we were. And, and sometimes, I don't know if you guys agree, but but reading Grudem is, is a bit tedious. I mean, it's a, it's a textbook, so it can get a bit tedious. And I thought an outline kind of helped you know, frame where we were, what we were talking about. So you may want to keep that handy as we go through the lesson tonight. It, it, it kind of helped me as I, as I prepared it just to kind of have that out to the side to see what we were talking about and where we were going. We've been in uh, a section that, that deals with the application of redemption. That's what we've been talking about over the last what are we, uh, seven weeks. We're on our eighth week now. And so we begin with election. Tonight we're going we're gonna to end with death, which I guess is an interesting thing to end with. But all of these are, are part of, of God's plan for redemption. And you'll recall we talked about election. We said that was God's sovereign choice. God chooses whom he will save. And, and, and all of these are, are part of the process of our redemption, some of which we participate in, some we don't. So when we talk about election, is that one we participate in or one we don't? That's one we don't. And then we talked about the gospel call. What, was the, what did we say the gospel call was? Call? Well, there were two, right? There were, we, we said that when the gospel goes out, there's a general call. The gospel is for everyone. There are people who, who hear the gospel who don't respond. There are people who hear the gospel who do respond. And we call those that do respond, they've heard the effectual call, the effective call of God. And uh, so, so there's a response there among those that hear, being the effectual call. And then there's regeneration. Who remembers what regeneration is? Regeneration is the work of God by, whereby he gives us life. We are made new creatures through regeneration. Now, do we participate in that part of, of redemption? We do not. That's correct. And we talked about conversion. What is conversion? Anybody remember? Is that the one? Did you teach conversion? Conversion is is uh, turn and repent, faith and faith and repentance, right? So we do obviously participate in conversion. What about justification? We do not participate in judge. That's when God gives us Christ's righteousness. We are justified. We talked about that being a, a um, accounting term. We're, we're credited with this justification. We're, we're given that. We do not participate. Sanctification. That's the one you taught. Yeah. Thank you. That's pretty much on us. That's the initial sanctification when we're, when we're saved. From that point on, so with us and not working with the conjunction. We do participate, right? I mean, with the Holy Spirit, we we study God's Word. We we worship with other believers. We uh, prayer. You know, those those things we participate in uh, contribute to our sanctification. It's our growth in in the Christian life. We talk about. And David, remember David drew a little chart, and it's generally an upward track, but there are occasions when it's a downward trend. And, and, but, but generally, over a lifetime, it's, a, it's an upward movement to, toward Christ-likeness. 
right? So we do participate in it. What about perseverance? Last week, Mark talked about perseverance. Those that have been given to Christ will not be lost. That's right. And you said you prefer the term? Uh, uh, thanks for putting me on the spot. Yeah, I forgot my sentence. <laughs> Preservation. Preservation. Because it's really God holding us, right? We're, we're, those that he's chosen will, will persevere. And then tonight we talk about the final piece of, of um, the application of redemption to those who believe, and, and that's death, the intermediate state, and glorification. And we talked about these you know, being a process or a series of events. Some of them happen really, really close together, such that as from our perspective, the way we view them, they happen immediately, although they do uh, happen as, as a part of a process. So Grudem begins the lesson <coughs> with talking about how we should view death. And, and he asks a question, why do Christians die? And I don't know, you know, my immediate reaction to that question was because everybody does. But, you know, when you dig into it, there's a little bit more to it, isn't it? Um, he, he asks the question, and he answers it by saying what, why, why or, or giving a negative, uh, why we, the reason that we don't die. And that's for punishment. We know that death is not punishment. Um, Jesus took the penalty for our sins. He paid for it all. And uh, David did a, he uh, trusted and obeyed an old hymn. He, I, I was thinking about Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Um, I was reminded when, we, when we're thinking about the, the, the payment that Jesus made for our sin, that, that there's none, none left for us. Uh, one of the days when I was in Senegal last, I was, I was sharing with, with a gentleman and had the trans, translator there with me, and we were talking about how Jesus paid for, for sin, and, and I said he paid for all of it. And, and the translator was having a hard time finding a word that fit, you know, Jesus paid it all. He paid for all of sin. And finally, the guy that she was talking to, Patricia was our, our translator, and, and she, he came up with it. He said, boom, lip. Boom lip. And Patricia said, yeah. She realized that it's, it's an old, old, deep Wolof word, meaning all of it, every bit. Jesus paid it all. So because of that, there's nothing left for, there's no penalty left for us. We don't, we don't die because there's a penalty. We don't die to pay the penalty for our, for our sins. All of it has been paid by Christ. Um, death is the final outcome of living in a fallen world, Grudem says. Um, we know that uh, all of the benefits of Christ's redemptive work don't happen all at once. It, it's a process, and death is, is a part of that. Uh, we all experience um, pieces of the fallen world. The, the, the creation was cursed when Adam and Eve sinned, and, and Adam was told that he would, would toil and struggle, and he would have to sweat and, and work the ground, and, and women were, would have pain in childbirth, and, and we all experience those things. Um, let me go back to we didn't read Romans 8.1 who had Romans 8.1 therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus okay. just a wonderful that's my favorite verse in the whole Bible honestly there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and so that just goes back to the it's not a reason why we die to, to pay the penalty for our sins. 
Who had 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26? I have it. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay. So the scripture tells us that death will ultimately be destroyed, but it hasn't been destroyed yet. It will be, but it hasn't been yet. And so that's one of the reasons that Christians, Christians die. Since death is, is not uh, yet destroyed, we, we still experience it. Uh, and we talked about the other things that we experience in this life just because it's a fallen world, like sickness and, and disease and aging and natural disasters, those things that just, just come along with, with living in this world. And then he talks about how uh, death is, it completes our sanctification. It's part of the process. Um, and he likens the, the process of sanctification in, in thinking about death, he likens it to how God disciplines his children. Who had uh, Romans eight twenty eight? And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Okay. So the, even the bad things that we you know, find distasteful, those things that are uncomfortable in this world, God uses for our good, like discipline. Who had Hebrews 12, 7 through 10? It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. But what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Okay. So what is discipline for? What does it What does it do? Part of our sanctification process. Okay. How does it do that? That's right. Verse eleven says, uh, "It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it." Okay. I think about you know I didn't have any children of my own, but I've I've spent a good time with a lot of your children down in Awanas, and there were occasions where we had to to do some discipline. We had to to. Uh, exact discipline. It wasn't to punish. I mean, our goal wasn't to make these children pay for what they had done. Our goal was to guide them into correct behavior and, and hopefully produce future behavior that was, was appropriate. It molds us and strengthens us. It builds character. In the same way, death is not a punishment, but at the same time, it's not natural. Grudem says that, you know, we, we tend to think because everybody dies that, that death is just a natural thing. And and it's not the way God intended it. Um, it's not right. It's not the way things ought to be. And it's really an enemy that's ultimately to be destroyed. He says, so if a believer's death is about sanctification, then obedience is more important than preserving our own life. We think about the Apostle Paul's attitude when we hear these verses. Acts 21, 10 through 13. 
Acts 21, 10 through 13. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judah. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the, and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so we see Paul's attitude there about his own life, being willing to give it up to do the things of God. What about Philippians 1, 19 through 21? For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed with all boldness as always. So now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is Grudem says it is important that we remember that the, the world's goal of preserving one's own physical life at all costs is not the highest goal for the Christian. The persuasion that we may honor the Lord even in our death and our faithfulness to him is far more important than preserving our lives has given courage to the many martyrs throughout the history of the church. I was thinking, as I was reading that section, I was thinking about <clears throat> in Daniel when the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So in times, hopefully we're not challenged in our faith that much, but in times that, that we are, uh, it's important to remember that preserving our physical life is, is not more, more important than being obedient to God and to his commands. Who had Revelation 12, 10, and 11? And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death okay so there's yet another reminder so if you're looking at the outline now we're going to move to how should we think of, of our own death and the death of others and uh, Grudem starts out by asking how we should think of our, our own death. Um, and I think we need to, you know, there's a couple different perspectives we can look at it. We could look at it from God's perspective. Who has Psalm 116, 15? This is God's perspective. Psalm 116, 15? I have it. Okay. 
precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Boy, I have quoted that verse many times in my life. It's an interesting verse, isn't it? What does precious mean? Really Special, cherish, highly esteemed. See, God has a different perspective on a believer's death than we sometimes do. So Grudem says we should not think of our own death with fear and trepidation, but honestly with joy, because we'll be with Christ. When we die, we go to be with him. We had 2 Corinthians 5, 8. I do. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Okay. Philippians 1, 21 through 23. For to me, I live in Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. That what I shall choose, I want not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. So there's joy in death because of our ultimate destination. We will be in God's presence. We will be with our Lord. Death does not separate us from God. Who had Romans 8, 38 through 39? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that a wonderful verse? Amen. Nothing separates us from God, even death. Now what about the death? How should we think about the death of Christian friends and relatives? We think about it in the same way as our own death? We don't. Why not, Steve? Uh, I don't know. I think it's uh, maybe a little selfish. Okay. Well, Grudem says there is true sorrow at the death of a loved one. Mm -hmm. Now, there's still, it's mixed with that joy. Again, we're talking about a believer who's died, a, fan, a relative or a, or a friend who's died, who's passed away. There's still joy because we know that they're with the Lord, mm -hmm. but there is genuine sorrow and, and grieving that, that takes place. And that's, and it's appropriate. He, um, he reminds us that uh, the men who buried Stephen after he was stoned, they, they, it says they made great lamentation over him. And he also used the example of Jesus when he was uh, about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus wept. And I'm not sure whether Jesus was weeping because Lazarus had died or because uh, his friends and, were so grieved that Jesus was moved for them. But it does show that, that there is a separation that occurs when a loved one or, or a friend dies and there's uh, is, there is appropriate grief over that because of that separation again it should be mixed with joy because we understand that they are now in the presence of the Lord I think a lot of times we as Christians uh, might be critical of uh, those who grieve at the death of a, uh, of a loved one as a, uh, as a believer it's natural you know, I, I, I kind of liken it to when I went away in the service, well, I know we're going to be gone in a few months, but maybe three months, three, four months, and all. And I was coming back, but it was a temporary separation. But we cried when I right. separated. Well, so this is something that, you know, it's a temporary separation. Um, you're going to cry. You're going it, to grieve. It's very real. Yeah. Very real. And yet, and I can speak from experience when my mom died. She died about a little, almost two years, three years ago now. I can remember feeling just this great confidence because I believe what I say I believe and I know she believed what she said she believed. 
I'm going to see her again. There's, there's joy in knowing that she is with her Lord. That grieving, that, that sorrow is very real and, and appropriate. Certainly appropriate. That's right. Uh, who had 1 Thessalonians 4.13? But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Okay. Revelations 14.13. Who had First Corinthians fifteen fifty five through fifty seven? I did until the oh, last I'm sorry, uh-huh. and then I missed you. First Corinthians fifteen fifty five fifty seven. Revelation 14, 13 says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, yes, says the Spirit, so that they may find rest from their labors and their deeds will follow them. Steve, did you get the circle of death? Uh, yep. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So even in the death of loved ones, close family, relatives, we can still celebrate in that victory that Christ achieved over death. Now what about the death of unbelievers? Will our thoughts about those be the same? Certainly not. There will be true anguish expressed at the death of someone who's not a believer. Apostle Paul said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I, could, that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen by race. Paul had this deep, deep, deep pain that he felt for his, his fellow Jews because they were separated from, from Christ. And Grudem warns that, you know, we don't know a person's true heart condition. You know, it, it's very possible that someone made a decision that we, aren't, that we might not would be aware of. But at the same time, you know, he cautions against giving false hope. Someone who, whose life clearly didn't demonstrate that they walked with God, then, then we would be, want to be very careful, giving any indication that that person would be in heaven. He, uh, he says it's better to share the gospel and, and reflect on our own salvation in, the, in those situations. I had, a, I had a friend, I still still have a friend who lived in uh, Duluth when we were in Lawrenceville, and I coached baseball with him for for years. <clears throat> his um, his youngest daughter got leukemia and passed away, kind of unexpectedly, suddenly. And I I remember going to that funeral, and <clears throat> it's the only funeral I think I've ever been to where I was almost a hundred percent sure that this person had, was not a believer. <clears throat> it was the most painful thing I've ever had to sit through. I was miserable. Um, 
it's just it's an awful feeling and I, you know I think um, I think Chul, Chul's brother passed away and, and maybe felt like that he had not uh, trusted in Christ as his savior and it's, it's a very difficult difficult thing and and fortunately I did what Grudem recommended I, I, I scheduled some time and I went back and sat with my friend and shared the gospel with him and Well, there were some, it was very uncomfortable that day, and you could see the family and friends just struggling for something that made sense, and, and it's just not going to, obviously. So then uh, he moves into a, a section about what happens when people die, and in, in talking about believers, they immediately go in, into God's presence. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So Paul is clearly showing that at death, when we, are, when we move away from this body, we are in the presence of the Lord. Um, and remember, when Jesus spoke to the thief on the cross, who had uh, Luke 23, 39 through 43? I do. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Okay. So Jesus was clearly teaching that at this person's death, at the thief on the cross, when he died, immediately he would be with Jesus in paradise. There was there were no other, there, there is no other option. In fact, Grudem then goes on to talk about what does not happen when we die. And he says the Bible does not teach the doctrine of purgatory. In Roman Catholic teaching, purgatory is the place where the souls of believers go to be further purified from their sin until they are ready to be admitted into heaven. But this doctrine is, is taught nowhere in Scripture. He, he goes into some detail about how the, how the Catholics do come about it, and basically they rely on some extra-biblical work, the... The, work, the words of the Apocrypha, which are not part of the canon, which are not scriptural. Um, and even, even, even when they use the Apocrypha to try to justify it, it doesn't always agree with, with um, the, the messages that they would teach. There are some passages that sometimes are used to support purgatory from scripture. Matthew 12, 32, Grudem reviews these. He says, Jesus said, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Ludwig Ott says that this sentence leaves open the possibility that sins are forgiven not only in this world but in the world to come. However, this is simply an error in reasoning for to say something will not happen in the age to come does not imply that it might happen in the age to come. What is needed to, pr to prove the doctrine of purgatory is not a negative statement such as this but a positive statement that says that people suffer the purpose of continuing purification after they die. But scripture nowhere says this. Another verse that people sometimes use to, to justify purgatory is 1 Corinthians 3.15. Paul says that on the day of judgment, the work that everyone has done will be judged and tested by fire and says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, 
but only as through fire. But this does not speak of a person being burned or suffering punishment, but simply of his work as being tested by fire. That which is good will be like gold, silver, and precious stones, and will last forever. It's hardly a convincing argument for the doc doctrine or, or the argument for purgatory. Uh, another, you know, more serious argument against purgatory is that it adds work to the, the redemptive work of Christ. It, 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 it's then saying that Christ's atonement was not enough, and, and that certainly wouldn't be scriptural. The Bible does not teach the doctrine of soul sleep. The doctrine teaches that when believers die, they go into a state of unconscious existence. This doctrine is found nowhere in Scripture. Scripture does sometimes speak, you know, it, it will use the word sleep to talk about someone who has died, uh, but that's just a metaphor to talk about how uh, death is temporary. In fact, Jesus, when he was uh, going, his, he was with his disciples on his way to raise Lazarus from the dead, he told them that our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep and the disciples were confused and, and wondered if he was just taking a rest and Jesus plainly said, Lazarus is dead. So it's just a metaphor that, that represents how um, death is, is temporary. Let's see. There are passages that uh, some people say indicate that the dead do not praise God. And again, that's about perspective. Grudem says that from our perspective, in this world, people would not praise God. Who had Psalm 115, 17 through 18? I did. The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Okay. So he's saying that we will continue to praise the Lord forever. That, that verse is taken out of context when it's used in that, that manner. There are many verses that show that believers are, are immediately in God's presence when they die. Who had Philippians 1, 23? I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better off by far. Okay. Luke 23, 43. We had 2 Corinthians 5, 8 once before, but who, who had that? Read it again. I had it. it. said, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Okay, so those verses clearly say that, that believers, when they die, go to be in God's presence. There is no purgatory, no soul sleep. Grudem asked the question, should we pray for the dead? Is there any reason to pray for the dead? No. No, believers are in God's presence. They have no need to be prayed for. The souls of unbelievers who die go to a place of eternal punishment and separation from God. And scripture's clear that there's there's no second chance. Who had Luke 16, 24 through 26? And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And the 
besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Okay. So there's no need to pray for believers who die because they're in God's presence. They're already enjoying their eternal rest. They're made whole. Unbelievers who die are, are eternally separated from God. It's fixed um, and it's final. Scripture never represents that final judgment is depending on anything done after we die. Uh, there's no second chance for those who didn't hear the gospel in this life. You know, that's, that's one of the arguments we hear a, a lot of times for, for election. What about those who, who didn't hear? And Scripture is clear. We know in John 3, 18, that it says those who didn't believe were condemned already. Uh, even, even you're condemned even without belief. Well, we're born separated from God. Sorry. Do you think historically people of various faiths have prayed for those that have passed away because perhaps they didn't know their heart, they didn't know if they were saved or not? It's certainly possible that that's one of the reasons. But I would say that it probably you know, leaves a, a, a lacking an understanding of what the scriptures say. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly possible that that's a reason. Well, finally, uh, we talk about glorification. And Grudem says that God does not leave our, our dead bodies in the earth forever. Uh, we will be raised. We will receive resurrection bodies when Christ returns. And this is called glorification. Glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead all the bodies of believers of all time who have died and reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. Who had 1 Corinthians 15, 12, and 12 through 14? You can, yeah. Now, if Christ is pro proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Okay. Fourteen. Okay. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Okay. So Paul's clearly teaching that there is a resurrection, that the, that the dead will be raised, will be given new bodies. And there's an order to it. Uh, Linda, read uh, 20 through 23. Oh, okay, same chapter. Yeah. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Okay. In First Thessalonians 4, 14 through 18. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who 
until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You know, there are some stories in Scripture that just, wouldn't you like to have been there when the shepherds were out in the field keeping watch over their flock and an angel appeared? Last night we, were, we had a devotion and, and Don Pinnell read to us about uh, God descending on Mount Sinai and, and keeping the children of Israel away from it because the mountain was quaking and, and trembling and thundering and lightning. and Just what a sight that must have been. How about this one? Can't wait for that day. And so what the scriptures are telling us is that those who have died have gone on to be there. They are in God's presence immediately upon their death. But when Jesus returns, what? They come back with him. Those souls, those spirits come back with Jesus. And then Grudem says, and I had never saw this perspective. He says, this only makes sense if the souls of believers who have gone into Christ's presence are returning with him as if their bodies are raised from the dead and joined together with their souls and then to ascend to be with Christ. It's going to be quite a sight, isn't it? So what will our resurrection bodies be like? Our, bodies, our, our resurrection bodies will be like Jesus' body, who had Philippians 3, 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Okay. Paul gives us a picture of our resurrection bodies in 1 Corinthians 15, 40, 42 through 44. First Corinthians fifteen forty two through forty four. Oh, okay. Sorry. No, that's good. Um, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown imperishable will be raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Okay. So he gives us four things about our resurrection bodies. It will be imperishable. So there's no more aging, no more sickness, no more disease, no decay. Our, our resurrection bodies will, will be glorious. And Grudem says that to think of, of what that means, to contrast it with uh, dishonor. There will be no dishonor in our resurrection bodies. They will, they will be bodies of beauty. Our resurrection bodies will, will be the ones raised in power. And he says to, to think of that in contrast of weakness. So we'll have full strength. Our bodies will be completely well, whole strength. Not superhuman necessarily, but we will just have full strength that God intended. And then our resurrection bodies will be spiritual in nature. And Grudem cautions not to think 
of spiritual meaning non-physical, but to think of spiritual meaning consistent with the character and activity of the Holy Spirit. So our, our resurrection bodies will be consistent with the character of the Holy Spirit. And we know, you know, from reading scripture that Jesus, when he, had his, when he was resurrected, he, he moved about, he walked, and he ate, he talked with other people, he touched, and he was touched. So those, those things give us some picture about what our resurrection bodies will be like. In conclusion, when we die, we will be like Christ. We really have much to look forward to. Death is not to be feared, for our union is with Christ, and we should long for that. We should long for creation to be restored, for things to be, to be again as the God declared at creation. And he said in Genesis 1.31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and it will be put back that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the lesson that you've given us tonight. Father, I pray that it is an encouragement to us as we think about the, the time when we will pass from this life into the next. Father, may it not be a thing that we are fear, fearful of, but it may be something that we are joyful about and, and eager and look forward to. Father, we long to be in your presence. We're thankful for those who have gone on before us, those loved ones that have trusted in you. And Father, we long for the day and think about the day when we will be reunited with them. And we rejoice that they are with you even now, worshiping you unhindered by sin. Father, we pray that that day would come about quickly when you descend and the dead in Christ are raised and those who are still alive meet you in the air. Oh, what a day that will be. Father, bring it about quickly. Until that time, Father, we pray that you would help us to remain faithful, that you would cause us to persevere in the faith, and that we would live out the purposes for which you've given us to take the gospel message to those around the world, to make disciples, baptizing them in your name, and pray that we would do so faithfully. We love you and thank you for all that you do for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.